we take for granted so often the blood of Jesus. We take so grant for granted so often the simplicity of what the cross did for us on the cross. The power of sin over our lives was broken. And because of the power of sin over our lives is broken, Satan no longer has dominion over us. He may be attacking you, may he may be bothering you, but he has no ultimate power over you. If you won't quit, you just continue on. He can't hold you here because his power was broken on the cross. Our sins, the, the power of sin is the law, the guilt that we carried around. And on the cross, that guilt was paid for. You're not guilty in God's eyes anymore. You may be struggling with whether you're guilty in your own eyes, but in God's eyes when you've come to Christ through the cross, that guilt has been paid for. You've been delivered from that guilt and the bondage of that guilt. Romans 8 is all about that. Hebrews 2 is about that. It says that we, Hebrews 2 says we need to keep reminding ourselves lest we drift away from that of what was done for us on the cross. The bondage of sin, the bondage of the fear of death, the bondage of judgment. And too many Christians are still living under that bondage that they've been freed from. And so when we sing songs like that of hallelujah to the Lamb, it reminds us, it reminds me of what He's done for me. And it makes me more and more grateful every day. Amen? Thank you, Tony. I know he put a lot of work into doing that because that's not in his normal repertoire. Because I asked him to do it, he did that. And I appreciate the effort that went into that. Father, we come to you now to the Word of God. We thank you for that we've had an opportunity to worship you with song and from our heart and to be ministered to, Father, and be reminded of just how much you love us and just how free you've made us to be through Jesus Christ. And we come now to turn to your word, Father, to open our hearts and allow you as our Father and as our God through the Holy Spirit to not just teach us and inform us, but to impact our hearts and our lives. Your word teaches us that there's things that our eyes have not yet seen, that our ears have not yet heard, that are, have not even entered into our hearts all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Well, we're those who love you, Father. But your word goes on to say that your spirit's been given to us to reveal them to us, and he searches the depths of your heart to know what it is that's in your heart to bring to show us today. And so that's what we ask you for. Fresh manna, fresh word from God, God breathed into our hearts by the Holy Spirit to open our, the eyes of our understanding more to see the hope of the calling that you have for our lives. It's in Christ Jesus. And not just for our lives, but for the lives of others. And we thank you for the confidence we can have today because of the faithfulness of your spirit and the steadfastness and movability of your word. And so we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel's chapter 3. We're going to finish this little look we've had today, had over the last few weeks. We've had an interruption or two. We had a week where we... We looked at, we had, we discussed the Lord's table because we were sharing the Lord's table together and last week was Father's Day and we had John Waller here and God ministered to us through him and I know he touched the hearts of some men here because I've had some testimonies shared with me. We've been talking about worship over almost a year now and very, very much for a purpose and as we're coming to the end of this section of it, I really felt God opened my eyes to look at Daniel and the story, first of all, of the three Hebrew children. And these were young men that were, when the children, when Israel was 
captured or conquered by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and they were going to take the, the, the Hebrew children over into Babylon and only leave a remnant. They started by choosing the cream of the crop. They choose the best of the young men, the smartest, the strongest, the most handsome. And those were being chosen to serve uh, Nebuchadnezzar in his court. And so he wanted the very best. And among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and I forgot the other Hebrew name, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the, Hebrew, were the Babylonian names that were given to them. And in chapter 1, we looked at, they were taken, and for three years, they were being trained and groomed to serve directly at, at Nebuchadnezzar's feet at his, in his court. And among the things that they had to do is they were, had to eat what the king ate, that, what's called the king's delicacy, and drink the king's wine. And we saw that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself, and he went to the chief of the eunuchs who was in charge of this group of men, and he said, we can't eat that food, and we can't drink that drink. Because our God has told us in, his, in the law that we are that's profane. We're not allowed to eat that. And the, the chief eunuch said, but if you don't eat this, you're going to come at the end of this testing period. You're going to come up looking pale. You're going to come up being skinny. And my head's at stake at this. And Daniel said, let's give us the test. Let's see what God will do. And so he said, you give us 10 days. And we're going to not eat the food that you're giving us, but we're going to eat the food that God's told us to eat. At the end of that 10 days, come check us. And at the end of that 10 days... The eunuch found that they were, they were stronger, they were healthier, they had more color in their face than the young men that were eating the king's delicacy. And then we went into chapter 3 and we saw that, that there came a day when King Nebuchadnezzar decided to build a monument to himself. And so he had a golden idol built that was 90, about 90 feet high and he set it out on a plane and he told the people that when you hear special music, you're to bow down and worship this idol. Well, of course, worshiping that idol was worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. And we saw that, that then the three Hebrew children were challenged. Somebody noticed that they weren't doing this. And so they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And we looked at the, at, the, at the background to this and what this is all about. This is a, a nice Bible story that if you've been raised in church as I was, I was taught this in Sunday school about the three Hebrew children and the fiery furnace and, and then Daniel and the lion's den and those kind of exciting stories. You know, you kind of grow up and say, well, those are nice stories. But they're not just nice stories. They're in the Bible for our purposes. They're in the Bible to teach us something and to prepare us for something. And I believe God began to get my attention as we've been looking at worship that what God intends for us to do is to be prepared for the days in which we live and the days that are coming. And what really struck me as I was looking, reading through this a while ago is that what in, there, this is the children of Israel will now taken into a foreign land to live under a foreign ruler. And that's very much like what's happening to the church today. Years ago, well, not that many years ago, 15, 20 years ago, the, the church was given great favor in this country. That wasn't mean that we, everybody were Christians and everybody came to church, but the church was respected. We were given certain rights and, and been certain respect and honor. And gradually that's eroded, and now it's eroding at, it's, erodes not the right word anymore. It's evaporating. It's changing so quickly that it seems to me some days when I read the newspaper and what's happening is if I'm living in a foreign land. This isn't the land I grew up in. This is the values that I grew up with that this nation had when I grew up, or even 20 years ago, that the values are changing, the goals are changing, and so much is changing. It really feels as if we're now foreigners as Christians living in a foreign land with foreign leadership over this land. And I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about the spirit that governs this land right now. And so we need to wake up to this time because there's things to learn from what these three Hebrew children went through. 
And we saw that the very thing that they were challenged with was their worship. They weren't challenged with what they ate. That's the preparation. They were challenged with what they were worshipped, and it began by being told what they were to worship. And we saw that the people were conditioned. They weren't just told one day, bow down. They were prepared for this. There was a process of preparing them, and we saw that it was the music that they listened to. It was the sound of the psaltery, the harp. It was the sound of the different instruments. The interesting word in there, played in symphony together. And when they heard that music, they were being conditioned to bow down. And we talked several weeks ago about the music that you listen to, the sounds that you listen to, the voices that you allowed to speak into your life. They are conditioning you for something. It's not just the message. It's the sound. Because we're moved by sounds. We're moved by smells. I'll hear, I'll hear music. I may not even know the words. I'll, have you ever had this happen? You hear, you hear a song. You hear just a few you know, parts of a, of a song, a few bars of a song, and memories come back. There's certain songs I've heard that when Anita and I were dating... I can remember where we were. I can remember what it felt like. I can remember all that stored up in there. And it was the sounds associated with that that brought that back and even sometimes triggered emotion in us, whether it was good or bad. Sounds are very important. And, and therefore, if all the sounds are of significance, if the, if the voices have a significance, we need to know who's behind the voice. We need to know what we're being conditioned to do. And therefore, while we still can choose what voices and what sounds we're going to pay attention to and what we're not. And we saw that the three Hebrew children, through Daniel chapter 1, that chapter, they had already disciplined themselves to only put into them, only feed on, only live on, what God had prescribed for them. And although in their case it was physical food, there are things that the world tells us that we need in order to prosper, in order to be happy, in order to be content. There are things that the world tells us as fathers and as mothers that our children need in order to be well-rounded and successful and prosperous children when they grow up. But is that what God's Word tells us? Is that what God prescribes for us? Is that what God prescribes for our children to eat? And we even shared the example that parents are so much concerned. We're led by the world to tell us that our children need certain things like they need to be involved in sports. And sports are, are good. You can learn all kinds of valuable things. But when we take our children to the sporting events instead of to church, then we're telling them that what the world's food is more necessary than God's food, the God that's prescribed. And then we wonder when they grow up and they get influenced by the world and we no longer have a voice into their lives. It's because we've allowed the world to condition our children to listen to the voices and the sounds of the world more than the voices and the sounds of God. And we've talked about that before. So now what we're going to begin to look at is, of course, the three Hebrew children were brought to the test and the report was given to Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't bow. They, 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 they're, not, they're not bowing to this, to this idol that you required us, you've demanded us to bow to. So they assembled them. They brought them in front of Nebuchadnezzar. And now it's not just they're in their homes taking a stand. They're now standing before the king with all the authorities around them, including the men that have the ability to execute them, standing right there. In other words, the threat 
is not just something that's in their mind. They're face to face with it. Their senses are, are, are being bombarded with the evidence that if they don't bow, they're going to burn. And their answer to Nebuchadnezzar is, we don't need to be careful about this. Because he said, whose God can deliver you? If... And they said, but even if, even if our, God, our God is able, but even if our God doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to bow. In other words, they were prepared, they were already prepared, they were already prepared to give their life instead of bowing to some foreign God. And the question we need to ask ourselves, are we there? Are we there? Are, am I there? I ask myself this question regularly. Am I at that place where if a gun was put to my head and said, if you deny Christ, I'll pull the gun down. But if you refuse to deny, deny Christ, I'm going to pull the trigger. See, the time to decide what you're going to do then is now, not then. They'd already decided that by choosing to not eat the king's food and by choosing to eat what God had prepared for them. And if you'll discipline yourself to put God first in your life, to learn to depend upon God first, if you'll discipline yourself in the small tests, then if you ever get to the point of the ultimate test, you'll already be prepared. Jesus was brought into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil as soon as he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say the devil went and dragged him. It says the Spirit of God. The very first thing the Holy Spirit did was lead him in the wilderness to be tested by the devil. So Jesus had to go through tests. And the ultimate test, of course, he had was in the garden. And in that garden, see, the decision to go to the cross was made in the garden. And the preparation in to, to the decision he had to make in the garden was made all throughout his three, three, three years of life where he consistently made decisions to put God first and to feed on God first. So if we don't understand that, we just kind of go through our life taking whatever comes along, not recognizing that most of the things that just come along are coming from the world and they have a purpose to beguile us and to draw us into just a lethargy and just to be just allow the, the spirit of the world, the spirit of the Antichrist, I believe, to begin to speak into our lives and to condition us. This is sobering to talk about, but it is absolutely critical to talk about absolutely critical to talk about. Well, now what we're going to begin to look at is they made the choice. We're going to look at what happened when they made the choice. They've now made the choice. They're going to, they'd rather burn than bow. Verse 19, we're going to pick up um, in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And the expression of his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it usually is heated. He said, when you don't bow to the devil, he'll get mad. He's not going to be impressed and say, whoa, look at that Christian. They wouldn't bow. No, he's going to try to put every pressure on because he wants to be worshipped. Remember we talked about, that's what the, this isn't about worshipping Nebuchadnezzar. This is about worshiping the spirit that's behind him. There's a spirit that's behind what goes on in nations. And I believe there's a spirit loose on this earth that's preparing the, trying to prepare the world for the coming of the Antichrist. And we're being conditioned. And so when he, they refused to bow, it was the spirit that was angry and angry. Remember we don't wrestle against flesh and blood? 
but against principalities and powers that use the flesh and blood. And that's what's going on here. All right. Heat it up seven times hotter than you usually heat it. And he commanded certain, certain mighty men of valor, you'll see why they had to be men of valor in a minute, who were in his army to bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they cast them in the, bar, the fiery furnace. These men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, they, they were fully dressed, and they were cast in the middle of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because of the king's command, it was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, and the flame of the fire kindled on those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The men that threw them in caught fire. That's how hot it is. The flames were leaping. You ever see these forest fires? And the problem of containing them isn't that it's got to burn along the ground. Heat can get so intense that the air around it is, 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 is flammable. And anything that comes in contact with that super hot air immediately ignites. And that's what happened here. This is how hot that fire was. So hot that the air around it was charged, was, was charged with heat. So when the men went to throw them in, their clothes caught fire and they caught fire. That's why they had to be men of valor. Verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the midst of the burning furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste and spoke and said to his counselors, Wait a minute, didn't we bind three men into the midst of the fire? And they said, Oh, yes, king, that's true. Verse 25, he says, Well, then look, because I see four men loose walking around in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the form of the fourth one is like the Son of God. Woo! Now the king said, if you don't bow, you're going to burn. And just to make sure that they didn't resist him, they tie them up in all their clothes, and they throw them down into this furnace, or I don't know how they got them in it, but they threw them in it, and it's so hot that the men that threw it in it burn. And the king's looking in there, and he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Didn't we throw three in there? And they said, yes, king, that's true. He says, well, I've just counted, and I see four of them in there, and they're all walking around loose. And the fourth one, I don't know who he is, but he looks like he's the son of God. Now, I'm going to stop here, because this is a very important thing to understand. Because when persecution comes... What it looks like is you're going to burn up. What it looks like is you're going to be consumed. What it looks like is you're going to be all bound up and you're going to die. But the lesson here is that because they were consecrated, because they refused at the price of their life to bow to some other god, because they they were determined to worship their god first at all costs, when the ultimate test came... Who shows up? But the Son of God shows up in that furnace. He didn't show up before they got in. He showed up after they got in. Now, there's a famous sermon by Oral Roberts called The Fourth Man. And I might preach it sometime. I, I pulled it down off the amazing what the internet has. I just googled fourth man Oral Roberts, and there it was. 
And Oral Roberts got to this point in the message, and he said, who is this fourth man? And he went through every book of the Bible and declared who Jesus was in that book. But in John chapter 9 is an interesting story. John chapter 9 is the story of a man who's blind from birth. And Jesus and his disciples come upon him. And they get into a little discussion about why he's blind. And Jesus said, you're going to see the glory of God. And Jesus healed him. And for the first time in all of his life, his eyes are opened and he can see. And of course, he's jumping around telling everybody. And there's a tremendous, a tremendous group of people collect around him. And there's this huge noise. And eventually the leaders of the synagogue want to know what's going on. So they haul him in to to investigate him. It's a great example. I went on time to go through it this morning where they're interviewing him and they're questioning him because they, they can't believe this happened. I mean, he was blind from birth. So eventually what they do is they say, they say, you know, well, who did this to you? He says, I don't know. Well, why did this happen? Who was this been? He says, I don't know. I love this. All I know is I was blind and now I see. See, that's all you need to know is what God's done for you. You don't need a lot of theology. You don't need to understand Calvinism and Arminianism. You don't need all, you know, all those isms. You, you just don't need to know, once I was dead in my sins and now I'm alive. Once I was guilty going to hell and now I'm free and forgiven going to heaven. That's all I know. That's all I need to know. You are an expert on your own testimony. That's all I know. So they got upset at that, so they brought his parents in. And they said, they say this man was healed and he was blind from birth. Tell us, he said, look, he's 40 years old. Ask him himself. <laughs> he refuses to deny who did this to him. So they kicked him out of the synagogue. One of the terms is they excommunicated him. He's outside the synagogue, kicked out of the synagogue because he took a stand and wouldn't deny who Christ was. Guess who comes up to him? But Christ himself. When he was kicked out of the synagogue for putting Jesus first, Jesus shows up just as he did in the fiery furnace. He says, what happened? He says, well, they kicked me out. He says, you know who the Christ is? And he says, no, I don't know who he is. And Jesus said, the one who's talking to you is him. And here's what's so important. Here's where so many of us are. Lord Jesus, help me to do this. We're in church. We've been in church, some of us, for a long time. We get into routines and we know scripture, we know the gospel, we know principles, we know all kinds. Sometimes we may know too much. But little's been done in our heart to change us. Oh, we're better, we're improved, we're learning how to be better Christians and be more loving and do more things. But what changed these people? What changed the Apostle Paul? What changed the Apostle Peter? Was an encounter with the living Christ. 
wasn't a doctrine. It wasn't some things they understood. It wasn't the theology. It wasn't the knowledge they had. It wasn't all the scriptures they knew and could memorize and could quote. Those are all good things to have. But it was an experience, an encounter with the living Christ. And those three men in that fiery furnace had an experience with the pre-incarnate Christ. He hadn't been incarnated yet. He hadn't come to earth and taken on flesh yet, according to John 1.14. But he was still a second person of the Godhead. There are places in the Old Testament where he shows up, and this is one of them. He showed up to the three men that would not bow their knee and worship what the king told them they had to worship and what everybody else was worshiping, including other Hebrews, I would assume including other children of God, children of a covenant with God, children who had the same law, the same commandments that they had, they bowed. But these three men, because they refused to bow, they had an experience with the living Christ. The man in John chapter 9, because he wouldn't deny him, had an experience with the living Christ. Over in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, what is one of the things I pray regularly? The Apostle, the Apostle Paul talks about his own growth. And he talks about the things that he used to put his confidence in. He talks about, you know, worshiping of the, in the Spirit and not worshiping in the flesh. And he goes on and talks about the things that he used to put his confidence in. He said, I could if I wanted to. He said, he lists his resume. He said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. According to the law, I was perfect. Well, nobody's been perfect, but I mean, I kept the law. He said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was at the elite. I had all the training, all the knowledge, and I was the best at it. But there came a point where I counted. That word in Greek means it's an accounting term. I moved from the Credit debit column to the credit column, or whichever one that is. I moved it from the negative, the debt, to the liability. I, as an act of my will, I changed how I saw things. And he said, therefore, because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, I've counted all those things that used to be gained to me, all those things that I invested my life in for my identity, for my value, for what people saw of me, for my image, what I thought of myself, all the things all my life I've invested myself into, my talent, my learning, my education, my degrees, my experience, my, all these things, my car, you know, my house, my children, all these things I've invested my identity in, I've counted all those things to be loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus for whom I've suffered the loss of all these things. And he goes on to say, so that I may know him. That word in Greek is a word that means have an, have an experience with him, not just a knowledge of him, but to know Him by experience, by intimacy, that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship or the sharing of His suffering, that I may be conformed to His death. That used to make me uncomfortable. Why would Paul's prayer that he learned to be conformed to His death, to His death to who He is? 
to his death to what he wants instead of what Christ wants, to learning to live his life for Christ and not for what he wants. And this is the struggle that we all go through. And the encouraging thing is he says a verse or two later, not that I've already attained it or I'm already complete or perfect, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press on towards the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. And then he says to encourage us, and as many of you has that same view, then you do the same. And if not, then God will show that to you. God will show that to you. God will show that to you. So the lesson of the fiery furnace, the lesson of the blind man, the lesson of the Apostle Paul, is that if we're willing to give our life up, in their case, it was their actual life. But you know, Jesus said, in order to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. Remember what a cross is? That's the, we got one up there. It's the place of death, of crucifixion. And Luke's version says, you've got to take it up daily. Which means I've got to daily make the decision, I'm going to allow Christ to live his life in me and to do that, I've got to put aside what I want, my rights, my privileges that I want for my own purpose and my own benefit and to allow him to work in me that he may, learn, he may live his life through me. I've had a taste of that. And I'm telling you, once you taste it, once you taste that experience, that's why Paul says it's the surpassing value. See, all my Christian life, I looked at those things and said, oh my goodness, it's scary. And it is, isn't it? To be, come on. It, to be honest with ourselves, it's scary. What am I going to have to give up? What am I going to have to do? Am I going to have to actually sacrifice my life? I don't know if I can do that. But boy, you begin to get a taste of him. Jesus says in John 17, I think it's 3, this is eternal life. Not heaven, that is. This is eternal life that you may know him and Jesus Christ, his son whom he sent. Knowing him. Not just knowing who he is but knowing Him. Knowing Him as I know my wife and she knows me, as you may know your spouse and your spouse may know you, hopefully. Knowing you as we know our children. Knowing us by experience. But this experience can, is so much more intimate because it's spirit to spirit. And this is why worship is so important. Because worship opens us up for the Spirit of God to begin to make that connection inside of us. So that as we begin to get that taste, Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Revelation chapter 12 says, and they overcame him. The seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches of Asia Minor all say at the end, he who overcomes and then there's a promise to him who overcomes. So there must be something to overcome, and it must be crucial that we, that we overcome. And in chapter 12, he tells us how. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. We sang about that earlier. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb cleansed them and washed, them away, from, washed away the guilt and the sin that was the hold that the devil had on us. The hold that the devil had on us was that, that we were guilty before God and therefore we had submitted ourselves because Romans uh, 6, verse 16 says, whoever you submit to, that becomes your Lord. 
And because we had submitted to sin, we had made Satan our Lord, and we were in his kingdom. But the blood of the Lamb washed that guilt away, paid the price and washed the guilt away so that sin no longer has dominion over us, so that we overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of our testimony, when we declared Jesus Christ as Lord, when we gave him the lordship over our lives by declaring, you're my Lord, we overcame the devil because we said, Jesus is now my Lord, Satan, you're not my Lord. Jesus is now my Lord. This world is not my Lord. Jesus is now my Lord. The things that this world offers to me is not my Lord. Jesus is now my Lord. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of the testimony. But so many people that quote that verse stop there. And the third thing is, and they loved not their life to the death. There's something about our the fallen nature. There's something about our flesh that desperately wants to hold on to this world and the things of this world and the comforts of this world. Desperately wants to hold on to these things. And the power to let go is what the power of the Holy Spirit does. This is what Romans 8 is all about. Romans 8 is about the victory. Romans 7 is about the problem. Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I know and determine not to do are the very things I run right out and do. And anybody ever experienced that? Yes. Of course we have. It's interesting in those verses, the, the pronoun I is all over the place. And you don't find the Holy Spirit mentioned in there at all. It's Paul's struggle to live out a righteous life in his own strength. And he ends by crying out the struggle, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then the answer comes, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. And that's why Romans 8 starts by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Because what the law could not do, because it depended on the weakness of my flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of flesh. He condemned my sin in his flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in me, who walks not according to the flesh, not trusting in myself, not trusting in my own works, but walks according to the Spirit, the work that the Spirit did when He came inside of me and regenerated me. And then he goes on in verse 12 and says, that therefore we should not be debtors to the flesh, but we should... But if by the Spirit you're putting, if you try your flesh, you're trying to put to death the deeds of the body, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. The power of the Holy Spirit to change us comes as we die to who we are and allow Him to begin to form Christ in us. So you, we may never be given the choice of going into a fiery furnace or not. But all of you are facing some kind of fiery furnace where you're having to make a decision every day, am I going to put Christ first? Am I going to put Him first? Or am I going to bow to something else in my life or something else that this world is offering me and bow to that? Am I going to bow to that? Well, there's an important significance to this. This is important not just for our walk with God, but it's also important. So what we see from this Let's go down to verse 26 now. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near, because when we left off, they're still in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar went near to the mouth of the fiery furnace, and he spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, look at now what he calls them, servants of the Most High God, 
Come out. Come out here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the midst of the fire. This whole time they're in the middle of the fire. And the satraps and the administrators and the governors and the king's counselor gathered together and they saw these men on whose body the fire had no power. So the first thing to see is the very thing that threatened them. The very thing that threatened them that they would be afraid of because they didn't submit to it, it had no power over them. The number one thing that Satan uses to hold us back is fear. Fear of something going to happen or something, and that is the only power he has over a Christian, is fear. And when you do the thing that you're afraid of, you'll find out that the fear has no power. Satan uses fear to intimidate you so that you will not do the thing that God's called you to do. Satan uses fear of what people are going to think about you, what it's going to mean to you. You're going to be alone. Nobody's going to like you. Well, we found out that if everybody abandons you because of your stand, one person's going to come to you. They were threatened with the fire that was going to consume them And they find out because they didn't bow to the fear. And the reason they didn't bow to the fear is they put God first. And when they put God first, the thing that they were supposed to be afraid of had no power over them. Well, is that good? You ought to get excited at that. Because most of you are in bondage to some kind of fear. You may not even know it. Something that you've been afraid of all your life. You may not even be willing to admit it to your spouse, your children, or maybe even yourself. But you've been in fear. Maybe it's of dying. Maybe it's of people. Maybe it's of yourself. You don't trust yourself. Maybe it's fear of the devil. When you came to Christ, you transferred kingdoms. Colossians 1.13 Delivered from the dominion, the authority of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Satan no longer has dominion over you. But he uses fear to try to hold you in bondage. And when they put him first... They went through what they were afraid of, but it had no power over them. And let's look at how much, how little power it had. They gathered together, verse 27, they saw these men on whom the, whose bodies the fire had no power. This is how far that went. The hair of their head was not singed. They're in a fire that's so hot that the men that threw it in them burned up. But see, God's power is supernatural. That the hair of their head wasn't even singed. 
nor were their garments affected. And there was no smell of fire. They didn't even smell like smoke. Like some of you may smell. (laughs) They didn't smell of smoke. And they'd been in the midst of this fire. That's a good question. What do we smell like? Now, I'm not talking about that you used deodorant this morning or whether you had to have a cigarette before you came in here. I'm talking about what's our life smell like to others? Does our life smell like the fire of the world? Are you so consumed by the, what you're going through that when people get around you, that's all they smell? I'm planning to go in this direction. Or does the world have no effect on you so that it can't, you don't pick up its smell? Instead, you are a sweet-smelling fragrance. I think it's Colossians that talks about that. There were, we're a sweet-smelling fragrance to the Lord. You know the Lord smells things? It says that the incense rose up to heaven and He smelled it. The prayers of the saints, the worship of the saints is a sweet aroma to Him. Our praise in the midst of a fiery time is a sweet aroma to God. And it begins to spread to other people around us. In fact, it will begin to keep the fire from singeing you and the smoke of the world beginning to get into your clothes and into your nostrils. Sometimes there's a smell of something that gets into my nostrils so much, even when I get away from it, I can still smell it. Like smoke can do that. A number of years ago when they first had water fire, we had, uh, my wife and I went down to it. I may have shared this with you, but we sat right on the edge of it. And all night the wind blew towards us. And um, I got home and took the, my sweater off. It was, it was a cold, cold night. And there was a smell of smoke in it. So we had the sweater washed. We had it dry clean. I couldn't get the smell of smoke out of it. That sweater was so saturated with the smell of smoke. Just being near it, these men were in it in it. Let's go on. Because this is so important. There's more than just whether we survive or not. Verse 28. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke. Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, uh, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word. This is the king saying this himself. Blessed is the God of, Abra- of, of, uh, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants and frustrated my purposes. When we refuse to bow, when we when we continue to worship God in our hearts and with our lives and with our mouths, when everything around us is telling us to worship something else. So how, I would never worship something else. When we complain, we're worshiping. That's music to Satan's ears. Just as praising God for the good things He's done and the things He's delivered us from is a sweet swelling, sweet swelling, I hope so, sweet smelling aroma to him. In the same way when we complain and we murmur, 
That's acknowledging Satan's power over God in our lives. And so the king is declaring that his goal and his purpose here has been frustrated. It was frustrated by their consecration and their devotion to the God they worshipped because they would not stop worshipping the true and the living God. It's changing this kingdom around. The church has tried to do all kinds of things to affect this nation. We petitioned. We've tried to get votes. We've formed organizations. We've had the moral majority and we've done all kinds of things like that. And they come and they go. Because we've not really used the weapons that the Word of God says the church has been given. Because the issue isn't flesh and blood. The issue isn't senators and congressmen and selectmen. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places. Now, in the past, churches have done some stupid things, like putting on combat uniforms and renting an airplane. And fly. They've done this, actually. Flew over a city, taking authority over the spirits. When the weapons that the Word of God tells us is worship and praise. <laughs> worship and praise. Worship and praise. And, 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 and the Word of God coming out of our mouth, the Word of God which is the sword of the Spirit, these are supernatural weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. The churches use the world's weapons to fight a spiritual battle and look foolish in the process. The king is saying, he's praising God. The true and the living God, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants and frustrated the king's purpose. It gets better. It gets better. They frustrated the king's word. Verse 28. They've yielded their, their bodies so that they should not serve or worship any other god except their own god. They were willing to yield their bodies. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, brethren, I urge you because of the mercies of God. The first 11 chapters, Paul goes through what, how merciful God's been to us. And then chapter 12 begins by, Therefore, brethren, I entreat you based on what God's done for you. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God which is what's right to God. It's your reasonable service. Present our bodies. Does that mean you've got to be thrown in a fiery furnace? You may have to. But it means my body belongs to you. My life belongs to you. And the king says, because they were willing to give up their bodies for their Lord, because of that, that's how this has happened. And if I invested myself so much in this world and in this life, that if I had to make that choice, I would not be able to live without this world and the things of this world in my body instead of not living without my Lord and His presence. Awful quiet in here. Which is your reasonable service. Let's finish by looking at what happens because of this. 
Therefore, I make a decree that any peoples, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut to pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there's no other God who can deliver like this. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Because of their consecration to worship the true God at the risk of their own lives, the name of God, the true and living God, was magnified in a rebellious nation. Our staying true under whatever's to come, our staying true to worship the true and the living God, even at the cost of our lives, is the very leverage that God might be able to use to turn this nation around. This is a nation that's, that, that has very few examples of people that will live and die by principles. Most of them are causes. And the problem with a cause is people won't give their life for it. They'll just talk about it. And I'm not on any cause particular. What I'm talking about is what I believe one of the lessons of this story is, is that here you have three men that were challenged, and the only area they were challenged in was who they worshipped. And because they wouldn't bow their knee to what they were told they had to worship, even at the threat of their life, because they wouldn't bow their knee, the Son of God shows up to deliver them. They frustrate the evil purposes of the king. They end up promoted, and the king ends up praising and honoring the God that they served. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, am I a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or I'm one of the other Hebrews that we have no account of, no record of, that must have bowed their knees to a foreign God? I pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to strengthen us and prepare us so that we stand strong. But it's the experience of knowing Him that comes through worship, that I believe is what holds us strong and holds us steady. Because it's easy to deny a principle at the threat of your life. It's very hard to deny somebody that you are intimately acquainted with and that you love with all your heart and you know that he is there with you no matter what happens to you. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 at the end, He says, I'm persuaded of this, that whether I live or die, whether I'm dealing with things present or things that might come, whether I'm on the top of a mountain and everything's going well or I'm down in the valley and everything seems lost, I'm persuaded of this one thing. Whether I'm dealing with angels or with demonic spirits, I'm persuaded of this one thing, that no matter what comes at me, no matter what happens to me, Whether I live or die, nothing can separate me from that which I've learned to live on, stand on, and depend on, and that is the love that God has shown to me and given to me through Christ Jesus. Is that what our life is built on? Is that what we're feeding on? Is that what we're becoming rooted and grounded in? Is that the breath that we breathe? Is that the food that we eat? Is that the song that we listen to and we sing? 
Is that what we're feeding into our lives? Because that's what the Apostle Paul learned to feed in his life. And because of that, nothing could change him. Nothing could threaten him. And that's what these three Hebrew children had fed into their lives. And as a result, the king, an ungodly pagan king, honored and worshipped and praised the God who they refused, who they were faithful to. May that Holy Spirit do that same work in us. Amen. Father, we thank you. We come to you just as we are. All we know to do is to be honest and open with you. And Father, as we've heard the word this morning and trust that the Spirit's beginning to search our hearts and we open our hearts to allow you to search us because you already know where we are and ask you, first of all, to open our own eyes to see where we are, to not be afraid, but to call upon your Spirit to come into us and begin to strengthen us and prepare us. Jesus, all of us in this room, I believe, want to be faithful. All of us in this room, I believe, want to be worshipers of you so that no matter what happens, we would never worship something else ahead of you. And so we ask you as we live our lives out today and tomorrow and the rest of this week and in the next months ahead, as we face decisions, help us to discern those opportunities we have to choose you first. Help us to discern where we're being tempted to feed on the things that the world is offering to us instead of choosing to feed on what you've offered to us. Give us wisdom and discernment. And Holy Spirit, strengthen us in our inner man with might that Christ may live his life in us and through us by faith so that being rooted and grounded in love, we may come to know with all of the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding that we may be filled up to all of his fullness. God, our confidence and hope is that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power of your Spirit who's at work in us, to the glory of God the Father. Father, as the pastor of this church, this is my prayer today and every day for all of us in this body of believers here at Faith Christian Center. And we trust you for it and we praise you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.